Heavenly Father, we love you and uh, the greatest need right now for our hearts, every heart in this room. Um, and in the back with the kids, the greatest need we have right now is for you to come and be with us today. We don't need to hear a sermon that you aren't saying to us. We don't need to worship you with joyless hearts. What we need is the God of the universe to come here and to impart to us joy, ears to hear, and to get me to say everything that you want to say today, Father God. So I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to condescend into our presence right now and exalt and glorify your name in our hearts so that we can see you as the infinitely valuable treasure that you really are. We love you, and we want to love you more. Help us today in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, please grab them. Turn to Luke 1, verse 46. Luke 1, verse 46. This is week two of a series that we've been in where as a church we've been exploring uh, something called the Magnificat. This is Mary's song of praise in uh, the opening parts of, of uh, Luke. And uh, we've been looking, we looked at the first few lines last week, and we saw how praise to God originates from a joy in God, a profound joy in God. And we saw how all true worship really is a consummation of that joy in God, or it's not really true worship at all. And uh, we also saw that God grants to us joy by shining the light of his countenance onto our souls, onto our humble estates, and in mercy, Mary here in this passage is rejoicing. God has shined the light of his countenance upon her, and she is enthralled in his enjoy in him. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to read through the passage we read through last week, the beginning of the Magnificat, and then we're going to build on it because there's obviously a lot of continuity to here and uh, see what the passages immediately after that say and, and what God uh, will show us. So let's start with Luke 1, 46 through 49. It says here, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is Mary. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Holy is his name. So here we are, we are watching Mary enjoy God. That's what worship is, a visible display of enjoyment in God. And we are, we are observing her magnify him in this text. And in her worship, she is reflecting on what he has done for her personally, what God has in his mercy done for her specifically. God, my Savior, she says. She has yet to consider the blessing to her people Israel, she has yet to consider the broader implications of what it really means for God to be a savior. She is just simply in this moment stunned by God's grace in her life. But now Mary is transitioning in this passage. She is uh, considering how it is that God has done this. What did God do to cause this? And she initiates this consideration 
by the words, for behold. She says, God looked down on, my, on me. He had mercy on his servant. And then she says, for behold. In other words, this is how you're going to know that he has had mercy on me. Here's the evidence. And her evidence is, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. All generations. 2,000 years ago, she said this. There will not be a generation of people on this planet who look back at me and don't say, she was blessed. And it's a wild thing for anyone to say that. Consider it like if you were to say that. It's crazy. It's preposterous that someone could look on me 2,000 years later and say I was blessed. Completely crazy unless she's right. Unless what Gabriel told her, the news that he delivered to her was true. That she is the one to bring the king into the world, the son of David, the king who will rule forever. If that's true, then she's not crazy. If that's true, she will most certainly be remembered from generation to generation. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and she has been. Every generation has considered Mary blessed since this point. No one has forgotten her. And this is why she says, behold, look. Look at how God has blessed me. Every generation will look back on this event and say, God had favor with me. He showed grace and mercy to me. And so why is this? Why is it that Mary is called blessed? Well, she tells us in the next line. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. This is her interpretation of the blessing that God has shown her. And of course, she's referring to the news that she received from Gabriel. Um, something that generation after generation after generation will look back at this text and say, that woman was blessed by God. And so what I'd like to do is I want to really feel the weight of this blessing, and I want to take a, a, a minute and just look back at the passage. We didn't do this last week and see the interaction between her, the encounter that she has with the angel Gabriel. Why does she feel this way? Why does she feel as though she will be blessed? What's so significant about this moment? So let's turn back to chapter 1, verse 26, and I'll read through this section here, and we're going to look at the encounter that she has with Gabriel. So verse 26 says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's ma uh, name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called 
holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this is the event. This is the single event that has ignited Mary's worship in the Magnificat. This whole series that we're in is arising out of this scene. These are the great things that God has done for her according to the song. So it says, verse 35, uh, says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is how the Son of God is going to come into the world, through you. God's going to do this, Mary, through you. And in that moment, she exalts in God. And he even tells her that this blessing isn't just for Mary, that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant. So, so think about this. God's not only able to cause a, a woman who's not been with a man to conceive a baby. He's even able to take a body which cannot conceive at all and heal it so that it does. Which may hint at something profound, namely that God isn't just bringing in something new into the world with his son, but he's actually fixing what is broken in the world already. And so in verse 37, Gabriel tells us why God is doing this way. God is doing it this way for a specific reason, and he wants you to know this, Mary. And the reason he gives in verse 37 is, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. God wants to communicate something really clear about this interaction. And it is this, that nothing is impossible with him. There isn't a thing that is impossible with him. He can form a child in a virgin's womb and he can heal a barren womb of a woman who's well beyond the age of bearing children and both of them will be pregnant and both of them will bear children. He can do this because nothing is impossible with him. Which is no doubt why Mary chooses the words that she does in the Magnificat to describe him. She calls him, he who is mighty. He who is mighty because nothing is impossible. She recognizes what has happened to her isn't possible. It isn't conceivable. Um, She's never been with a man. She knows that. This is not a, a game. This is not a myth where something magical is happening. She knows that this is not possible, and we're meant to feel the impossibility of it, yet know that Gabriel says, this is going to happen. God is proving something here. He wants to make it very clear that I can do the impossible. And the reason why nothing is too difficult for God is because of what Mary says next in the Magnificat. And this is really where I want us to center our hearts on this morning. She says the line, and holy is his name. Holy is God's name. That's what Mary's saying here. Now, what does that mean? What does she mean when she say that? Why would you say that, Mary? Well, whatever her motivation is, it's clear that Mary feels that she needs to acknowledge the reality of God in this moment. Not just what he's done, not just what he's doing here, which is amazing. 
but she needs to talk about who he is. And so when she says, holy is his name, she's, she's saying, it's not enough for me to simply tell you what he's doing in this event, that he's blessed me. I must, indeed, I must, I'm constrained to tell you who he is, because you won't, you won't understand the glory of this event fully if you don't understand the glory of the one who brought this event into being. And so she says, holy is his name. Now, what does she mean by that? We have to clarify some things here first. The word name, what does she mean by name? She doesn't mean the letters that form the word by which we address God. That's not what she has in mind here. Though his literal name, Yahweh, is holy and should be regarded as holy. That's not what she's saying here. What she's saying here is God's name is his reputation, his worth, his value in the world. His glory, that's his name. That's the meaning of the word name in this line. So for example, if you were to dishonor your family's name, that's not dishonoring the letters of a surname. That is dishonoring the reputation and the perceived value of that name. And here's, here's an actual example from Scripture. So after God rescues the people of Israel from Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, he guides them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And in the promised land, they abandon God. And they embrace the other Canaanite gods that are around him, and they say, we don't need you anymore effectively by their actions. And this is a big problem for God. Not only because he loves them desperately, not only because he's jealous for them as his bride, but it's a problem for him because his value and his worth is being impugned. It is being to to be made less honorable and less valuable than it is. It's as though their actions are calling him unnecessary and worthless. You are a worthless God, is what their actions are calling him. And a just response to this, an objectively righteous and just response to this, would be wrath. It would be to remove them from the planet and start over with a different people. That's what he should do if he's just looking at this from justice. I should cut them off entirely. But he doesn't do this. Look at Isaiah 48. God is talking here, and he's going to tell us why he doesn't cut them off. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is God talking. God says, my glory, the display of my worth to the universe, I will not give that to anyone else. I will not give it to another. His glory as the one true God, his glory as God alone belongs to him. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And so his reputation and his value with the people of Israel is on the line. 
And the only thing worse than defending his reputation by wiping them out would be for him to destroy Israel and break his promise to Abraham. That's the only thing that's worse. Because he looks like a dishonest God who can't keep his own promise. And in defense of his own name, God in this moment defers his anger. Not because Israel is good. Not because they're going to turn things around on their own. Not because of that at all. He doesn't cut them off because he refuses to allow for his name to be profaned against and disregarded. For my own sake, he says, I do it. For my own sake. Now some will look at this and probably mockingly say, so your God, Jeremy, only is interested in protecting himself and his reputation. That's what he calls love. Is that his grace? And that question shows uh, a lack of understanding in the value and worth of God intrinsically, obviously, but it also shows an ignorance in the radical evil of man and the justice due them in Israel here. But the answer to that question is really simple. There is no higher love towards God's people for God to so cleave his people to his own name, his own value, and his own worth that though they objectively deserve to be removed from the equation permanently, he fights on their behalf. He fights for them. You're tied up with me. And I'm going to fight for you now. That's the very definition of grace. It's the very definition of love. And Isaiah 48 is telling us this is what God is doing. God is cleaving them to his worth for my own sake, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Which takes us back to Mary and Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. She says, holy is his name, the name of God, the same God from Isaiah 48. This is what holiness means. And I think we oftentimes simplify it to be a moral word. Holiness is righteousness. It means to be pure. And that's true. That's very true. All of those things are true, but they're not complete. To be holy, to be sanctified, and to make something holy is to make it unto God, to to bring it so that it is unto the service of God. It is to set it apart completely for God's use and for God's purposes. That's what it means to be holy. In other words, it's no longer part of the world. It's no longer part of the systems of the world. It belongs to God. And so holiness is a conformity to God and a conformity to the purposes of God, coherence with his design. So it's not just a moral category. It is that. We need to hold on to that reality. Holiness is righteousness. It is purity, and we're going to get to that in a a little bit. But it's not just that. It is being set apart and sanctified for service unto God. And I think we can understand that term when it comes to things in this world. Uh, Holy prayers or holy words or holy people or holy days or holy worship. These are things that are set apart for God. But what does it mean to refer to God as holy? To say holy is his name. What does that mean? So think about it. 
if the word holy means to separate, separate from the world and, and set aside for God, how does that apply to God? How does being set apart for God be part of a characteristic of God? How does that work? And the answer is that God's holiness is his complete and intrinsic set-apartedness to himself. His, his complete um, otherness from everything else that exists. Um, he's not defined by anything in the material universe. Nothing in the material universe is a standard by which he can be measured. He is completely other. He is one of a kind. He is the, the term sui generis. There is nothing like him in the universe. He's one of a kind, which is why when Moses first encounters him, I, I don't know if you guys remember this, when he first encounters him um, in the burning bush, he struggles to wrap his mind around who this God is. And he can't. Remember, Moses asked him, what is the name of the person, the God who I should tell them sent me? What's your name so I can tell them this? To which God responds, I am who I am. In other words, I am simply there. There's nothing to define me in this world. I am there. I am absolute reality. I never came into being. And there was never a time when I wasn't around. I have always absolutely been there, period. God, God, is, God is saying effectively, do, do you know what my name is, Moses? Do you know what it means for my name to be holy? I am, period. Deal with that. I am ultimate reality. <laughs> and everything else, had a beginning, except for God. He's always been there. And to ponder this for us in our limited faculties, it is enough to break the mind. That God is the creator and the source of all things, which means everything else that we enjoy, big, small, great, um, infant, uh, infinitesimal, all of that, all of that is by comparison to him, fleeting and insignificant. We are like shadows to substance. We are like vapors in the face of Mount Rainier. And it is the difference, vapors to Rainier, is the difference between trillions of stars that we call universe and the living God. That's the difference that he's communicating to Moses when he says, I am who I am. I am absolute self-existent reality. Everything else is frail and contingent. Everything else relies upon me. I rely on nothing to exist. And that is what makes him holy in a way that we can never be. Holy is his name. And before we go back to the Magnificat, and try to understand how this applies to us. I want to take a moment and I want to feel a little bit more of the weight of that line, holy is his name. Because I think we can live this, in this world and not understand how big of a deal it is. Just those few words, holy is his name. And I want to feel that, not just as a description of God, 
Because I, I believe that if we don't understand the absolute otherness of God, the absolute holiness of God, we will miss something massive from the Magnificat and from the Incarnation and from everything that, Christen, that Christmas points to. Um, the most fundamental and the most critical thing for a human being to know is what does it mean for God to exist? What does it mean for him to be? And what does it mean for him to be holy? And the Bible speaks really clearly about this and very often. What I want to do is I want to look at one place, one corner of this book, um, Psalm 113. So if you want to turn there, there are many places that I could look, but I want to look at this one passage. It's a short psalm, but it is deep in truth. And I want to take our souls and just press a little bit into the tsunami of God's holiness with you before we go back to the Magnificat. There are three distinct ways that God's holiness is clarified and communicated in this psalm. And I want to drill down into each of them and then we'll come back to the Magnificat. So the first one is this, uh, Psalm uh, 113, 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. That word Lord there, it's all capitalized because it is his name, Yahweh, which is a play on the words, I am who I am. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The single greatest tragedy in the world I would say, is that we can read a passage like this and not feel the weight of what is being said. Human beings made in the image of God, we exist to know him and to show him to this world. That's why we're here. That's the reason we're here. We could read a line like this and not be stunned at what's being said here. The psalmist in this passage is totally and completely gripped by the holiness of God. Think about how many times in just these three sentences, one that's only three words long, think about how many times, that's four sentences, my bad. Um, no, it's three, I got it. Three sentences. He says five times that God should be praised and God should be blessed. So what's his point? Why would you say that five times in just that short sequence? His point is, if there is one thing that has to happen in the universe and everything else stops happening, everything else ceases to be, that must be praise directed toward God. Everything else can disappear into oblivion, but that thing has to remain. It cannot be removed. There is nothing more important in the universe than for God to be praised. Absolutely nothing which is why he says, from this time forth and forevermore, God must be blessed. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, he must be praised. He has to be praised. And the reason for this, implied in the passage, is that God is worthy of this praise. God is worthy of never-ending, never-ceasing praise. He's worthy of it objectively. Like this is his right this is who he is. To not give him this would be to dishonor him because he is this valuable. He is this glorious. 
And if you can't see his worth, this will sound, it'll sound very petty that the God of the universe inspires the psalmist to write these words to invite people to praise him. It will sound vain if you can't see it. But the bottom line is you, you will never see the need to praise God, of course, if you can't, if you're blind to the beauty and glory of God. You'll never see the need to it. You'll never see the necessity, the objective constraint that all of his creatures have to glorify him if you can't see his worth. But if you recognize that all of reality, everything that you enjoy in this life, everything that you think is good, everything that you think is pleasant, everything that you find beautiful in your life hangs like a picture on the wall hangs on the worth of God alone for its own existence, then you will join in this praise. You will find him delightful because you'll see that his worth is the source of all other worths in the universe. His value and his worth is holy. It is holy. He alone is this worthy. He alone deserves this kind of praise. So his worth like his name in the Magnificat, is holy. But the psalmist continues in verse 4, because God's worth isn't the only thing that is alone, set apart, holy. It says here in verse 4, the Lord, Yahweh, is high above all nations, and his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down, on the heavens and the earth. So in this section, the psalmist is asking a rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord our God? And the answer is really simple. No one. There is no one like him. And the focus in this section is, uh, for, for the Lord is that he is high above all the nations. There is no one of greater authority. There is no one of greater power. There is no one greater than in governance than God Almighty. That's what it means for him to be called God Almighty. There's no one greater than him, which is why Mary in the Magnificat refers to him as the one who is mighty. He who is mighty. Next to everyone else, he is the only one who is mighty. He is unequaled in power. And I love this. God's glory isn't just in the heavens. In verse 6 it says, it's above the heavens. Actually, through this whole section, it's above the heavens. Um, as amazing as our universe is, as amazing as the cosmos is, when you take a telescope and you look out beyond the extent of our solar system and you look out beyond the rim of our galaxy and you look into the seemingly unending blackness of space pocked with trillions upon trillions of stars, to God the psalmist says, all of that is very far down from where he is. Whether in power or glory or authority, nothing in the heavens can rival with God. Nothing in created reality, whether it's physical, spiritual, or any other thing, can compare to him. He is seated on high, the psalmist says here, which means he is enthroned in power over everything. And that means that nothing constrains God outside of himself. Nothing can stop his will. God does 
whatever he pleases in heaven and earth. Psalm 115.3, just to the right of what we just read. Nothing anywhere can stop him. He does whatever he pleases. Job 42.2 says, nothing that God desires to do can be thwarted. He is high, enthroned above the heavens. And as Gabriel told Mary, there is nothing that is impossible for this God. He is in complete control. All authority and all power belong to him, which means that he is not only holy in his worth, but he is holy in his power and his authority. And then the psalmist continues, this third final aspect of holiness, verses 7 through 9, he says, He raises, God raises, the poor from the dust. God lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. God gives the barren woman, like Elizabeth, a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. So at this point, we've seen God's holiness in his worth, that he is more worthy than anything else in the universe to be praised and worshipped and revered. We've seen his holiness in his power and his authority. No one can compare to him. So what's this last element? What does the songwriter want to commend to our hearts before he puts the pen down? Well, here the psalmist isn't just talking about who God is, his intrinsic qualities in and of himself. He's talking now not only about God's nature and character, but about something God does, something God is doing. The psalmist says in verse 7 through 9 that God shows mercy. This God isn't inert. He isn't silent. He isn't standing still. His worth and his power don't simply look down from heaven or from above heaven. He doesn't fold his arms. He doesn't walk away. This is not the God of the Bible. This God is moving powerfully in the world to set things to right. He is and he always has been acting according to his love and according to his compassion for broken people. This passage, this section of Psalm 113 shows the unrestrained mercy and love and grace of God toward people who desperately need it. It says here, he raises the poor and the needy. He pulls them up from the ashes and the dust, brushes them off, cleans them up, and sets them with princes. This is the God of Psalm 113. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Magnificat. He isn't just holy in and of his being. His holiness compels him to love and extend grace and mercy to people who are suffering. There is no God or person who loves like our God. There's no God anywhere who is as gracious and as merciful as him. This is true love. We use that phrase a lot. There is no love truer than this. This is true love. It says he makes the barren woman a joyous mother, just as he did, did with Elizabeth. He heals barrenness and infertility because he desires to show mercy. He desires to show grace and compassion. And I think we, we read that line and we're like, that's great. That was a miracle. That's cool. But do you get what it, what it means? 
Like God will gladly bend and break the laws of nature to show his love. Those are his laws. He's like, I'm going to set those aside for a second and love you where you are. That's amazing. And no one is as loving as him, which means that his holiness doesn't just extend to his worth. His holiness doesn't just extend to his power, but it extends to his love. His love is holy. No one loves like him. And here we are, the psalmist is crying out to us, trying to get us to feel that, to see it for what it is. This is a God who is really holy in worth, holy in power and authority. He is holy in his love. He didn't just walk away when we rebelled against him. He could have done that. He could have said, you know, enough is enough. I'm done. He didn't do that. And he didn't even just stay put and send somebody else to help out. This God came down himself, and this is what the Magnificat is all about. This is the purpose of the Magnificat. He came down into the dust and into the ashes, and he found us there. In the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our rebellion, he finds us, and he wades into the ashes to get to us. That's the God of 113. Listen one more time to what Gabriel says here. And think about all that we've learned about the holiness of his name in reflection to this verse, Luke 1.35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. I hope you see the connection there. Mary is singing a song about God, saying that he, he is holy, his name is holy, because the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow her. And the child that will be born to her will be called holy. Same God that she is praising in the Magnificat. This is this is more profound than we can even imagine. It is impossible for a virgin to conceive. It is impossible for a barren woman to have a child if she can't physically do it. It's impossible. But neither of these things are the greatest impossibility in this passage. They aren't. The greatest impossibility here is that the one whose name is holy, who never had a beginning, and will never cease to exist, is going to be, get this, born into humanity. That is the greatest impossibility. That is the miracle of the Magnificat. The Almighty God, I am who I am, absolute reality, becomes a man. And everything else that he does in this text, though it is miraculous, though it is amazing, is child's play compared to that. When Mary says, he who is mighty has done great things for me, this the one whose name is holy, coming down and being born, is the greatest thing that he took on flesh. And so here's the deal. This is where it connects to us. The Magnificat isn't just a song that Mary sang. It isn't. The Magnificat is for us. This is our song. This is our song. God has done something 
mighty for us through Jesus and the cross. And we can sing this song with Mary because her blessing in this song is our blessing. The greatest and most ultimate blessing that she receives is ours. It's not just for her. It's for us as well. It it is that God took on flesh to redeem mankind. It was the only way that he could save us. Gabriel says he will be called holy. Our Savior needed to be holy. He needed to be the Son of God. He needed to be perfect. He needed to be blameless without rival in order for us to save in order for him to save us. It couldn't have happened any other way. In order for us to be forgiven, he had to be holy and blameless. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, stop for a second. Paul is saying, for your sake and for my sake. For our sake, for each one of us, our sake God made him, his son, to be sin. To be sin. So I know this is three letters, S-I-N. But inside those three letters is every single thing that you've ever done to dishonor God. Every thought that you've had, every act of cruelty, every act of selfishness, all of them are in those three letters. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, because his name was holy, so that in him, in the Son of God, we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is what it looks like for he who is mighty to do a great thing. This verse is what it looks like for the most high to come very far down into the dust of our world and to redeem us. This is what it looks like for the one who is holy to plunge headlong into the ash heap and rescue us. Think about this. He had to become our sin, to be sin in order for us to become holy. That was the exchange. That's the exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is the only way. The one being who possesses infinite worth, infinite power and authority, infinite love, descends into the dust of our own rebellion. And he buys our freedom with his own blood. This is Mary's child. This is the one who will be called holy. This is the price of our salvation. And this is how God broke into human history to save you and to save me. This is what he did. He did this. So in a few seconds, we're going to be celebrating, we're going to be worshiping, and we're going to celebrate. One of the ways we do this at Risen Hope, obviously, is is through communion and through the Lord's Supper. And what I would like to do is, if if you put your faith in Christ and you've trusted in him, and you've received the righteousness that is in this verse, you're invited to participate. I welcome you to the table, and I want you to think about this. The body and the blood are represented by the elements of a child who was called holy. 
unlike anything in the universe. And if you haven't received him, if you haven't received this righteousness through faith, I would ask that you do it. There's, there's nothing more valuable than Jesus. Everything I've described about Jesus today is true of him and infinitely more that I am incapable of describing. He is that worthy. And if you receive this king, you will receive his righteousness. It will be immediately granted to you. And one day, this king, the one who is called holy, will call you blessed, just like Mary. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've been working on this kingdom for eternity. Come and inherit it because you are blessed. Mary isn't the only one that is called blessed in the Magnificat. We share in that blessing. And one day the child who is called holy will beckon us into his kingdom, extend his hand to you and say, come you who are blessed by my father, come into this kingdom. And this is his promise to all who receive him. Let's pray. Father, I, I can feel the, the weight of my limitations in being able to describe this adequately. I can feel the, the weight in, in my own weakness in being able to articulate, Father God, what it means for your name to be called holy. And my prayer right now, Father, is that in the next few minutes, irregardless of that weakness, and because you are all-powerful and nothing is impossible, that you do, I pray that you would commend to our hearts this reality. That in whatever way you are pleased enough to, to show us your holiness, that you would do that, Father God. It is enough for us to receive that today. That you would come here and open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ so that we recognize his indisputable worth and his incredible ridiculous love in descending down into the depths of our sin and our depravity, our brokenness and rescuing us, Father. Help us to see that in this season. If we don't see anything else, help us to see the miracle of the incarnation that the one whose name is holy took on human flesh to love us in our greatest need. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.